mind turning to uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 17. First Chronicles chapter 17 says this. Now when David lived in his house, David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. That same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, It is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. For I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day, but I have gone from tent to tent and from dwelling to dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all Israel, uh, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus, says, uh, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more, as formerly. From the time, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm it in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord, God? What is my house that you have brought me thus far? And this was a small thing in your eyes, O God. You have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come, and have shown me future generations, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you for honoring your servant? For you know your servant, for your servant's sake, O Lord, and according to your own heart you have done all this greatness, and making known all these great things. There is none like you, O Lord, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making for yourself a name uh, for great and awesome things, and driving out nations before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. And you made your people Israel to be your people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord, let the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house be established forever, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be established and magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, is Israel's God. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray before you. And now, O Lord, you are God, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For it is you, O Lord, who have blessed, and it is blessed forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. Lord, as we look at your word today, Lord, I just pray that I would disappear, get out of the way, that you would increase and I would decrease. Lord, I pray that your word would be communicated clearly today and that we would walk away more in love with you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. 
Uh, well, one way the Webster's Dictionary defines a contract is they defined it as a binding agreement between two or more persons or parties, especially uh, one that's legally enforceable. It's a binding agreement between two parties. And there's a lot of different contracts in our world today. Some of them are kind of commonplace. Some of them border on silly. Uh, for example, the band Van Halen had this clause in their contract uh, where that when they went into their dressing room, there had to be a bowl of M&Ms there. And there was a clause that all of the brown M&Ms had to be removed. And if they f went in and found any of the brown M&Ms were still in there, they had the right to cancel the show and they would receive full payment for the show. Now, it seems a little pretentious. It seems kind of, um, you know, crazy that they would be that, you know, you know, they had to have the brown ones removed and they would be that detailed in that. But there was actually a really good reason that they did that. Um, they were involved in really complex shows. They had truckloads and truckloads of equipment that they brought in, and they relied on a lot of different people to set up their shows and to make sure their shows were safe. And so they had all this complex equipment, a lot of it that could be dangerous, and all the, the details and all the instructions had to be followed exactly. So what they did was they put this clause really deep within uh, all these other instructions and for them, it was kind of like a warning sign. So if they got to a show and they found brown M&Ms inside of that dish, they knew there was a problem because they knew that the, the, the people who were in charge hadn't listened to the directions. They hadn't read through. And mo more than likely, there was some kind of a safety issue involved. And usually they would go and find that issue. So there's contracts for silly things. There's contracts for serious things. There's contracts for some crazy things. Uh, for example, there was a, a website, and uh, it was called rentahitman.com. It was started by a man named Bob Ennis, and it was started as an internet security firm, so people could go on and they could get you know, IT security. Some people thought it was literal, so he would get all these inquiries from people who were trying to get somebody else killed, uh, like this lady named Wendy Wine. Uh, Wendy Wine contacted him. She thought she was talking to this man named Guido. Um, turns out that he just turned over all this information to the police. And so he, she goes and she's meeting with this person. She thinks is going to kill her ex-husband. Turns out to be an undercover police officer. Uh, and he, she describes how she wants her ex-husband killed. And uh, she's got her money in hand. She's ready to put down a deposit and, and, and pay for it to be done. And, of course, she was you know, arrested, put in prison, and faced a number of serious charges. Um, but contracts are a part of our, our lives. Uh, I've signed a number of contracts of, uh, for purchasing houses uh, as a representative of the church. I know when we sold the parsonage last year, I signed the paperwork related to that. Um, you probably signed a number of contracts as well. Maybe it was a rental contract or purchasing a house. Maybe it was purchasing a car or so something else. Um, some people do contract work, you know, maybe somebody contracted you to do a certain uh, a, a task for a certain amount of time. Um, there's a lot of different contracts. Maybe you uh, contracted with someone else. Maybe you paid somebody else to uh, paint your house or do some uh, concrete work or to put a flooring in or, or whatever the case may be. Contracts are a part of life. And really, when we think about contracts, it's basically an agreement where two parties exchange goods or services. And in our culture, the most common way that's done is with money. 
You know, you pay said individual to do pay said individual to do something for you. You know, you pay someone to paint your house. You pay someone to put your floor in. You you pay someone for the right to live in their property, live in their apartment. And so contracts are an important part of uh, of our lives. And we think about these contracts, and uh, you know, we all have been involved in them in, in one way uh, or another. But one thing that's interesting about contracts is contracts never create love. And contracts never or usually don't strengthen a relationship. For example, let's say you're getting someone to paint your house. And you're paying them an incredible amount of money to paint your house. You're paying them $5,000 to paint your house. Now they come to your house with ladders and paintbrushes and paint. They're ready to paint your house. Now do you go out and look outside and you think to yourself, wow, that's amazing. I can't believe that he would come to my house and paint my house. It's incredibly generous of him. You're not thinking that. You're thinking, I hope he doesn't miss that spot over there. I hope he doesn't hit that. I'm paying a lot of money for this. So it doesn't strengthen the relationship. It doesn't create love. And uh, when I do premarital counseling, um, I go through this workbook, and kind of the, one of the first lessons is kind of the idea that marriage isn't a contract. Um, it's not I give a little bit, you give a little bit, and we just kind of, you know, have this kind of completely reciprocal relationship. It's not just about I scratch your back, you scratch mine. It's a giving of oneself because contracts don't create love. And as we look at this passage, I think that's kind of what God is trying to communicate to David. Uh, David is kind of approaching his relationship with God kind of like a contract. And I don't fault him for that. I don't think he's doing something that was uh, sinful. He's just kind of operating under the framework that he was familiar with. There were a lot of different um, kind of contracts that were called covenants back then. They were a little bit more involved in our contracts. They were a little bit more serious, a little bit more personal. Uh, but there were covenants related to a lot of different things. Um, there were covenants between equals where you just, you know, just kind of similar to our contract of like, I'll do this for you, you do this for me. Um, there were contracts between stronger parties and lesser parties, a suzerain vassal treaty, uh, where this suzerain, like a stronger power, would contract with this lesser power, uh, that they made this stronger power would protect the lesser power, and in exchange, this lesser power would give all their allegiance and all their loyalty to the stronger power. So there are a lot of different covenant relationships, and I think he's just kind of approaching that kind of in the framework that he knows. Uh, God has been incredibly gracious to him. He's allowed him to defeat Goliath. He's allowed him to become king. He's defeated the Philistines. Um, and his response is, in a sense, kind of sweet and innocent. He, he says, I'm dwelling in this beautiful palace, and here you are, your presence in the, uh, in the Ark of the Covenant, you're just dwelling in a tent, like, wouldn't it be right for me to build a temple for you? If you've done all of these things for me, I should be doing this for you. It's almost like he feels like he's taking advantage of God. And he's like, God, i got to do something for you. And God re uh, responds in an interesting way through the prophet Nathan. And he says, in essence, why do you think I need you to build me a temple? I mean, throughout all of, my, uh, all of Israel's history... Uh, I was traveling with you. There was never this temple. Why do you think that I have to have a temple? Why do you think I need something like that? 
And then he goes on and he tells the story of what he's done in David's life, how he's raised him up from the, um, from the pastures, being a shepherd boy, uh, gives him incredible promises. God says his name is going to be great, his enemies are going to be subdued, his throne will be established forever. And notice what's absent in this. Qualifications or conditions. He doesn't say, if you build me a temple, then you will become a great king. If you are exceptionally righteous and the perfect king, then you'll become a great king and then your name will go on forever. He doesn't have these qualifications. He doesn't have uh, these requirements of him. And we see that God chose David. Why? Why did God choose David? Because he chose David. He didn't choose David because he was exceptionally strong or mighty or righteous. He chose him because of grace. Because he chose David to be the king. It was all of God's grace. It was all God's choice. And so God chose him. He became a mighty king even though he had many failings. But we see throughout his life, all of his life is the product of God's grace. And we see in this passage that that a contract doesn't produce love, but grace does. A contract never produces love, but grace does. And I think that's what God is trying to communicate to David, that this is not a contract. This is not, okay, I've done things for you, now you need to repay me. This is an unconditional covenant. David, you're going to be a king, and your kingdom is going to reign forever and ever. But some of us, when we think about a relationship with God, we think about a contract rather than a covenant. We think about a contract rather than a gift. And I think that's even the default mode of the human heart. To think about a relationship with God in contract terms rather than receiving it as a gift. We see this throughout the ancient religions. The ancient religions were built on this premise that I do certain things for the gods... I give them part of my crops, I give them my worship, some even in pagan societies, they even gave them their children, and in return, these gods are going to give me a bountiful harvest, they're going to give me good health, etc. It's a contract that I give something, and then the gods give something in return. We see this with the Pharisees in the New Testament. They're under this contract mindset that I give God my tithe, I give God my worship, I go to church, I fast twice a week, and in exchange, God's going to look with favor upon me. In exchange, God is going to bless me financially. He's going to bless me and make my name great. That's the fundamental mindset of the human heart. That I do something for God, and God does something for me, that it's a contract. But Christianity is incredibly different. Uh, there's a story I've told it before. Uh, Philip Yancey recounts it. Of uh, C.S. Lewis was at this conference of comparative religions in England, and uh, at the conference, um, the attendees were just kind of talking about uh, what makes Christianity different from any other religions. And they started debating different things, like the resurrection. And they're like, "No, there's some other religions that have a resurrection." And they went from thing to thing. And then C.S. Lewis walked into the room and heard them kind of discussing this. And he's like, what, what's going on? And they told him, we wanted, we're trying to figure out what's different about Christianity. And he said, that's easy. It's grace. 
That's the difference between Christianity and other, any other religion or any other world system or of belief. It's grace. Jesus proclaimed a different ethic than any other religion proclaimed. The religions of the world say, come do these things and you will live. Jesus, on the other hand, says, come to me and you will live. Look what Jesus said in John chapter 7, verses 37 to 38. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus doesn't come and say, scrounge up whatever you have, try to find whatever water you have and come to me. He says, come to me empty, come to me broken, come to me weary and you'll find rest and you'll find hope for your souls. We can't view our relationship with God like a contract. Our relationship with God is a gift of God's free grace. He's offered us that gift in Christ. And just like David, David didn't need to build the temple. I mean, it's going to be a good thing for Solomon to eventually build it, but David didn't have to build it because God's presence was, was with him. As believers in Christ, we don't need to build a temple because God's presence lives inside of us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we can't view it as a contract, but as a free gift that we receive. Now, at this point, maybe you think to yourself, well, aren't there conditions to following Christ? Aren't there qualifications? Aren't there things that we have to do uh, to get to eternal life, to receive eternal life? And really, that's the question. So is the covenant conditional or is the covenant unconditional? Is it conditioned on my obedience or is it unconditional in that it's a free gift of God's grace? And I think the answer is yes. The answer is yes. It's conditional and it's unconditional in a sense. How can that be? Uh, I think the story of David kind of provides us with a paradigm for this. Uh, God chose David. It was a free gift of his grace. It wasn't because he was exceptionally righteous. It wasn't because he was exceptionally mighty. He came and says, I'm going to make you a great king. And your kingdom is going to reign forever. But from there, he said, I'm going to make you into that great king. He promises him, and then he starts to make him into that great thing. So it's unconditional that God's grace is present throughout the whole thing, but it's conditioned in that he actually becomes a great thing, that God is going to make him a great king. And I think the same thing is true for us as believers. God comes to us in grace. He offers us the gift of salvation. It's free in Christ. We just simply receive it. Say, God, I, I need you in my life. I need your forgiveness. And he comes, to an, it comes into our life. Then he's like, okay, you're saved. Now I'm going to change you. I'm going to make you into my image. And so we see in the in scripture, we see sometimes we see warnings about kind of falling away. So we see passages like, uh, without holiness, it's impossible to see the Lord. Uh, we see passages like uh, we're told uh, not to, that we have to endure to the end to be saved. Think about it this way. So uh, my son's three years old. And let's say I tell my son, don't go into the road. Because if you go into the road, if it's a busy road, you're probably going to get hit and you might even die. That's a true statement. If he goes, in, if he goes in uh, Niagara Falls Boulevard, runs into the middle of the road it's probably not going to be a good thing. It's not going to turn out well. So I tell them that as a warning because I don't want him to go into the road. But there's something else that I don't tell him. 
that as his father and the fact that he's three years old, I'm not going to let him get close to that road. And if he starts to get close to that road, I'm going to do whatever I can to get him out of there. Even if it means going and and diving and and knocking him out of the way, even if it's going to hurt him, uh, it's better than getting hit by a car. Even if it's going to cause me to, to jump in front of that car to push him out of the way, whatever it takes, I'm going to make sure he doesn't get hit by the car. And so I think God gives us warnings in the scripture uh, to, to kind of keep us on the right path. And as believers, we know that he's our perfect father. He's going to keep us from falling. And the same God who warns us that we need to endure to, to the end gives us the promise in Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. So it's all of grace. He's the one that strengthens us. He's the one who sustains us. He's the one who keeps us, and he'll keep us on that right path by his grace. Ephesians 2 says we're his workmanship created in Christ for good works. So it's not a contract. It's a gift received by grace in which God comes into our life and changes us forms us into the image of his son. And I think as we look at this passage, I think there's a number of applications that we can take from this passage. Number one, um, God doesn't need us. God doesn't need David, but he chooses to use him for his glory. And God doesn't need us, he chooses to use us. As believers, we need to always remember we come to the relationship as receivers, not as givers. There's nothing that we could add to God's glory. He is sufficient in and of himself. And yet he chooses to love us and use us. Christ is the fountain of living water. And anything that we give back to him is simply uh, giving back uh, the gift that he's already given us. He's completely sufficient. Luke 17, Jesus says this. He says, will any of you who has the servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly? And serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. I mean, that seems kind of harsh in a sense. um, But I think what Jesus is prescribing is kind of the antidote for pride. Because sometimes I think what happens is uh, we start to believe that we have it all together. You know, maybe we begin the Christian life and we believe in grace and we believe the fact that we need Christ in our life, but somewhere along the line we start to believe we can do it ourselves. We start to believe in our own sufficiency rather than in Christ. And I think that's kind of the context of where Jesus was. He was kind of talking to his disciples, or his disciples were present here. And uh, the disciples, remember, they were kind of asking questions like, who's going to be the greatest? And can I sit at your left hand and at your right hand? And they're like, okay, we've been following you for all this time. You know, give us some place of priority. I mean, we're, we're going to be sufficient in ourselves, right? And they feel like if we just keep following after Christ, you get to a point where you're sufficient in and of, of yourself. But it's a reminder that all of our lives are of grace, and we need Christ in everything that we do. If we build a temple in our own strength, it's going to end in failure. And that's what, what would have happened with David, if God isn't present in our works, then we can't accomplish anything of eternal significance. Uh, There was a great preaching professor named Erwin Lutzer. You may have heard of him before. He used to uh, teach at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And uh, he would do these preaching classes, 
And he would always take students to this local cemetery in Deerfield. And he would take them out to the cemetery. He'd find a tombstone. And he would pick out one of the students. And then he would say, okay, preach to Mr. Smith. And they would look at him like, what are you talking about? Well, why, why are you telling me to preach to a tombstone? They're dead. And uh, he would go on and he would preach. And he would say, all right, uh, Mr. Smith, you need to know the Lord. You need to repent. You need to turn from your sins. You need to put your faith in Christ. Then he would look at the students and tell them this. He'd say, this is no different than preaching the gospel to unsaved people. The Bible says they're dead in their sins. You can preach your heart out, but nothing will happen unless God does a miracle to give them the life to listen. We need God's presence. We need God's power in our life. Jesus said this in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branch, and whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Building a temple in our own strength will result in failure, but working in God's strength and his power can change eternity. So that's the first thing I think this passage shows us, that God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to build a temple. He chooses to use us for his glory, and he can use us in a remarkable way, but he doesn't need us. We need him. The second thing we see is that God's grace brings incredible joy. David's response to God's declaration is this. He says, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you brought me thus far? That's a heart that understands grace. When we realize how far Christ has brought us from, we realize the eternity that we were headed for. We'll say the same thing. God, who am I? Why did you choose to love me so much? Why did you choose to send your son to die on the cross for me? Why have you chosen to show me such kindness? Why have you chosen to show me such goodness? But it's all a matter of perspective, right? Uh, David Brooks, writer uh, for the New York Times, um, he wrote this article, and in this article he described how he often is, feels more satisfied when he goes to kind of cheap budget hotels than when he goes to five-star hotels or five-star resorts. And the reason he says that is because, you know, you go to a five-star hotel and you're paying an incredible amount of money and you expect everything to be just so. And you have these really high expectations of what it's going to be like. And then if anything kind of fails to meet those expectations, you're kind of dis disappointed. But he says, well, you go to a budget hotel and you're not expecting much. You know, maybe you're expecting that you won't be able to sleep because the, the bed isn't going to be that comfortable. And you lay down and it's really comfortable. You get a good night's rest. Or maybe you go to the breakfast and expect it to be inedible. And it's, it's great breakfast. And so anything that you receive, anything that kind of goes beyond your expectations you kind of are happy with. Uh, Brooks writes this. He says, This little phenomenon shows how powerfully expectations structure our moods and emotions, none more so than the beautiful emotion of gratitude. Gratitude happens when some kindness, uh, when some kindness exceeds expectations, when it's undeserved. Gratitude is a sort of laughter of the heart that comes about after some surprising kindness. Gratitude happens when kindness exceeds expectations. And if we believe that 
God's kindness has exceeded expectations, then our hearts are going to be filled with joy. Now, on the other hand, if we believe that we deserve a good, comfortable life and we feel that we're entitled to the good life, then we're not going to be grateful. But if we believe what the Bible teaches us, that apart from Christ, we're headed for an eternity separated from God in hell, an eternity of hopelessness, if we believe the good news that God rescued us, that he gives us a new hope, a new life, that he's called us his sons and daughters, that brings incredible joy. Because it's kindness that exceeds expectations, that we deserve judgment, we deserve separation for God, and yet God has given us everything in Christ. It should change our mindset. We should rejoice in the kindness that he's given us. There's a pastor man by the name of Jack Hinton. He was on a short-term missions trip um, to a place called Tobago. And he was leading worship at this leper colony. And uh, he had done a number of songs, and there was this one individual who was looking the opposite direction the whole time, wasn't looking towards the stage. And at one time, at one point in the service, she turned around, and Hinton says it was, her face was the most ugly face he had ever seen in his life. Uh, her nose was gone. Her ears were gone from the leprosy. I mean, she was just a mess. But she raised her hand, and she asked for a request, a song to sing. And the song that she wanted to be sung was the song, Count Your Many Blessings. He left there, he was floored. He didn't know how to handle that. That here he is with so much opportunities, with health, wealth, and yet this woman who has nothing, her face is literally melting away from her. She says, let's sing Count Your Many Blessings. One of his associates came up to him and said, hey, I don't think we're going to be able to sing that song anymore. He said, yeah, we will but we'll never sing it the same again. They understood grace. They understood the kindness of God. God has been so gracious to us. And when we understand the grace that he's shown us, it should produce joy in our hearts. Finally, God's grace should produce incredible love. It should produce an incredible love in our hearts for God, that he would do, do that for us, that he would send his son to die on the cross for us, that he would give us so many blessings First uh, John four nineteen says this: We love because He first loved us, and so it should create a love for God in our hearts. But it also should create a love for others. That that living water that fills us up should overflow in blessing to others. Uh, God chose to have a special relationship with David. Chose to be really kind to David. I mean, look at his life, and you know he was a nobody. He was a shepherd boy, and yet God comes to him and says, "You're going to be the." greatest king in Israel's history. But he did it for a purpose. Not only because he loved David and wanted to bless David, but also because he loved the world. He knew that through David, the king of kings would come. Through David, the one who would bring hope to all the nations would come. And so God blesses us so that we could be a blessing to those around us. And so we experience God's grace. It should cause us to love him with all of our hearts, but also to Show that love to those around us. There's a pastor by the name of Vernal E. Sims, had a really rough upbringing. But he shares his story about how God's grace has overflowed in blessing to those around him. He says this, I grew up in a rough Boston housing project called Columbia Point and a family of nine children. 
Although I had been a hard-working student, paying for college seemed impossible. But my mother's favorite expression was, pray, the Lord will make a way somehow. I viewed that as good advice for other people. But when I decided to go to college and seminary because I believed the Lord had a call on my life, I had no other choice. I packed for college and even went to orientation, but still didn't have any money. I'd have to pack up my belongings and make the 100-mile trip back home. But an heir to a corporate fortune heard about my plight, paid for my college and seminary education. After I graduated, I went to my benefactor's office to thank him for all he had done for me and asked him what I could do to, to pay him back. Imagine my saying to a multimillionaire, what can I do to repay you? The man responded, help somebody. He said, I've spent the last 20 years in the ministry with that goal in mind. I pastored in the drug-ridden, crime-infested inner city as well as well-manicured suburbs. And I've learned that, uh, that the blessing of God is like a boomerang. As I've tried to help somebody, the Lord has blessed me. I think the same, same thing is true with us. The Lord comes to us. He's given us so many incredible blessings. He's given his, us his grace in full measure. How do we repay him? And God is like, show that grace to someone else. Pay it back to someone else. Show my love to those around you. Show other people my truth, my love. God doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us. And if we experience his grace, it should produce incredible joy in our hearts. It should produce incredible love for God, incredible love for those around us. God's grace is incredible. And our relationship with God is not based on a contract. It's based upon a gift, the gift of God's own son. It's a gift that we can't earn, that we only receive by his free, free grace. And this truth should transform us. Because a contract never produces love, but grace does. I'd like to close by reading a quote from Martin Lloyd-James. He says, it's grace at the beginning and grace at the end. So that when you and I come to lie upon our deathbeds, the one thing that should comfort and help and strengthen us there is the thing that helped us in the beginning. Not what we have been, not what we have done, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. The Christian life starts with grace. It must continue with grace. It ends with grace. Grace, wondrous grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your incredible matchless grace. That while we were yet sinners, you sent your son to die on the cross so that we might have life. So that we could have everything in you. That while we deserved an eternity separated from you, you chose to give us the perfect life in you. Lord, help us to never move beyond your grace. For those of us who are believers, Lord, help it to bring joy to our hearts. Help it to produce love for you and love for those around us. Help us to realize that we need you in everything that we do. That we never get to a place where we move beyond your grace and your help. That if we're going to accomplish anything of, eternity, uh, of eternal significance, we need your power and your strength. Lord, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they respond to your grace. Not that they try to do things to earn your favor. There's nothing we could do to earn your favor. 
But today, even in the quietness of these moments, that they would turn their heart to you and say, Lord, I need you. I know you don't need me. I know you don't need my performance. But I need you. I need your forgiveness. I need your hope. Lord, I pray anyone here today that they would turn to you by faith. Lord, we love you. Help us to bask in your glorious grace today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.